Hi, I'm Audra. And I'm Sadie. And we are former English Lit majors and sisters who miss reading and discussing literature with fellow Lit nerds. And we created this podcast to discuss literature fueled by libations. So pick your poison and join us each week to discuss all the queries and views unearthed in great books. And support your local bookstore. Welcome, everybody, to Lit and Libations. Hi, Sadie. Hi, Audra. I am excited. So we are wrapping up our discussion on your last pick, How Far the Light Reaches, A Life in Ten Sea Creatures by Sabrina Imbler. Uh, excited to, to finish up talking about these essays, stories. We kind of went back and forth on calling them essays or stories. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, excited to wrap up that discussion. I really liked all of the essays slash stories in the second half of this book. So we're starting with, for those of you um, who are just jumping in, with Beware the Sand Striker is the first essay we'll be going into. But before we do that, we should probably um, remind everybody what our next book is going to be. Uh, So you can get caught up on reading that. Pick up a copy from your local bookstore or bookshop.org. It is Fledgling by Octavia Octavia Butler. Really excited to discuss this one. Yeah. It's like a vampire story, uh, but I love Octavia Butler, so really excited. So that's what we will be discussing uh, over the next two episodes. So go ahead and get reading on that one if you haven't already. Um, what you drinking there? I'm being kind of lazy. I'm not going to lie. So Brian and I are going on vacation for a week starting you know, tomorrow. So we're kind of short on everything in the house because we didn't want a grocery shop before we leave. Um, so Brian made me a white Russian, the, like the one thing that we had left. So we had vodka and we had Kahlua and we had the last bit of like milk that we had to drink before we leave. So I'm making use of it and it's delicious, but I, I'm kind of disappointed though. I wanted to do something like on theme with this book because I felt like there was so much cool, like there was, there was just so much inspiration that I could have like drawn from, but I just went for a white Russian. That's okay. I chose practicality. You know what? I think, I think you're still on theme because you're being resourceful. That's true. Um, That's true. You're trying not to be wasteful. That's true. Um, and you still like you. You didn't just like grab a beer or a glass of wine. Like that's true. So don't feel hard on yourself. I think that's a that's a great drink. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. How about you? Uh, I made myself a pina colada. Um, yum. I was also going to go crazy and do all sorts of stuff with, cause like this book, you guys, you really should get this book just cause it's so beautiful. The hardcover copy we have, mm-hmm. if you've seen it on mm-hmm. our Instagram, it's so pretty. And I wanted to do something glittery and colorful. Cause last time I did that fun blue drink, but, um, I didn't get that stuff, but I do have fresh pineapple and I have coconut cream and I have this delicious pineapple coconut juice that I like. And I have some coconut rum. That sounds and, amazing. You know, yeah, it's really good. So I, I made that. And I really like a good fresh pina colada with like fresh pineapple. It's Yeah, why don't we should have this conversation again tomorrow after I'm sitting on the beach with one. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Please, please, <laughs> yeah, please have like all of the frozen fruity oh, I tropical drinks. I, w- I want posts on them. Okay, like, all right, yeah. I can do this. I will do this for the gram and for you, mostly yes. for you. Well, we're so excited for you. Thank um, you. 
Yeah. So that our, like I said, our next book is fledgling and then we'll let you know what the book we're doing after that is as soon as we have it. Uh, so you can pick up a copy as well. Oh, I already picked. Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't tell you. I forgot to text oh. you. Um, tell me. So I'm going to pick Piranesi by Susanna Clark. Okay. Yeah. That's been out for a little while. I'm surprised we haven't done it already. We kind of have a little bit of a thing with like that genre. So this should be good. Yeah. I'm excited. It's been on my like to read list for a long time. I bought it forever ago. And then I just keep like going. It's always, it's been like my second choice for the pod every single time. But then I just end up picking a different kind of book that I haven't read before, but I just want to read it and I want to read it on the beach. So that is my, that's the choice. Pure and Easy by Susanna Clark. You know, I love, did you read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell? I have not read it. Her other, oh my gosh, I loved that book. I really, really liked it. That is a great one too. So you guys, if you're looking for something, I would definitely uh, go down that route as well. Um, but yeah, this one, it's like set in an alternative alternative reality, right? Um, and it's yes. it looks, it seems really, really interesting. Kind of along the lines of like anything by Neil Gaiman um, and... It does say if you liked Circe, this would be a good one. Um, It has to do with kind of the labyrinth. So, yeah, this should be fun. I like it. I am very, very much excited to read it. It's going to be good. And I also really like, um, I'm not going to be reading the audiobook, but I've heard really good things about it. And the Mm. audiobook is read by, um, I'm going to butcher his name. I'm so sorry. It's Chuitol Agiafor. He's the one who, he's the actor who was in 12 Years a Slave and. Um, oh, yeah, he's great. A lot of other things. He is a fantastic voice, though. And I've heard really great things about the audiobook. So if you're into audiobooks and you don't want to pick up a, a physical copy, um, I've heard really good things about that one. Yeah, that is a really, uh, he's a really great actor. That's cool. Maybe I'll have to pick that up. I'm not usually a audiobook person because I just same. retain better. Yeah, same. Um, reading. So, but that sounds really good. All right. Um, all right. Well, let's, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Should we get into it? Yes. So, our first essay slash story is, uh, beware the sand striker. So this one was interesting and kind of a trigger warning before we talk about this specific story, I think, um, is that it has a lot to do with sexual assault. So, yes if that's not your cup of tea, you know, skip forward maybe five to 10 minutes. But, um, I really did like the story though. I thought it was really good. So in this, this story or essay, um, Sabrina Imbler kind of compares this sand striker is what it's called, but it used to be named something different. Um, who's this, this predator that basically occupies space on the ocean floor and is a giant worm and has giant jaws and is, you know, like millions upon millions of years old. And it's just like this very covert kind of predator. And it was named after, I should know this, is it like Babbitt, I think is, Lorena Babbitt? No, Lorena Bobbitt. Bobbitt. So you're probably too too young. uh, Yeah, I don't remember this when this happened. Do you remember it? Yes, I mean... I, well, so this was in 1993. Lorena Bobbitt cut off her abusive husband's penis with a knife. Um, and then 
so she of she was an immigrant. Lorena Bobbitt was. She was born in Ecuador, grew up in Venezuela. She came to the U.S. on a student visa. She met uh, John Wayne Bobbitt. Um, he was a Marine. They married, um, and he began beating her, raped her, forced her to have an abortion. He threatened to have her deported. Um, after he was discharged from the Marines, she was now the sole breadwinner. Um, their house was foreclosed on. They moved into an apartment. They broke up, got back together. Um, he came home drunk and raped her one night and fell asleep. She went to the kitchen, saw a knife on the counter, cut off his penis, took it with her in the car, um, and threw it out the window, um, somewhere along a road. The police later went back and found it and a plastic surgeon and urologist reattached it. (laughs) So then of course, over the next, next year, it was all these jokes about it. I mean, stuff was done on Saturday night live about her. I mean, and even the, like, I, I remember hearing about this, but not hearing about that he raped her and beat her mm-hmm. and was abusive and threatened to have her deported and that she had no options. All I heard was she cut off his penis and that's like all it was. And there was all sorts of things about it. And it was just jokes all over the place. And, um, like, there was a trial. They learned that the Marine Corps and um, Sabrina gives all these details in this uh, essay as well. That they, the Marine Corps, did review like some things that had been happening, and they did say that yes, he had been abusing her, but no one ever did anything about it. He was right. never found guilty of marital marital sexual assault. Although in the at the time in the state of Virginia, a spouse could only be charged with rape if the couple was living apart or the victim was seriously injured. Fucking wild. Um, Yes, she was found not guilty of malicious wounding due to temporary insanity, and they then divorced. And then John was in Porn Stars and went on this, like, tour and was on the Howard Stern show and, like... Yeah. But then he also was convicted again of battering another fiancé. Like... Anyway, so it was a, I remember it being a big deal, but I remember it not being a big deal for the reasons it should have been a big deal for, Right. you know? Right. And I think that it's so interesting that now there's this worm Mm -hmm. with this name and it's like, and uh, Sabrina brings up in this book, like, I wonder if Lorena watched, you know, watches any of these documentaries that brings it up because it's just... I don't know. Anyway, that, that was the story of Lorena Bobbitt. And it definitely was kind of this cultural, I don't know, what's the word? Just thing that moment. happened. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And really interesting to look back on it with a different lens and then through the lens of Sabrina's own um, experiences with sexual assault. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, it's written about in a very... I, I was thinking about this when I was doing the Instagram post today. I, I really, really like these essays because they, it's so beautifully written. We've talked last time about the structure of this book and how well everything goes together and the flow. It's very beautiful. It's very lyrical. But a lot of what we're reading about and are having to confront are really ugly, uncomfortable, awful things, whether yes. it's about sexual assault or it's about our own humanity's destruction of our planet and the creatures on it. Yeah. Um you know, and, and death and the inevitability, like none of these things that are really in this book are naturally 
or excuse me, necessarily hopeful. Right. <laughs> like it's not very happy things, but there is this element, of, I think a little bit of this everlastingness and there is some hope in it. It's like, you've got to just stare at this ugliness and darkness for a while to then eventually see the beauty in it, which is very similar to a lot of the creatures that they write about. Yeah. You know, like, when they talk about this worm in particular, you know, like the initial description that you get of it is kind of horrific. Like nobody would think that a worm could possibly be beautiful, but they talk about how it, it's like sheen on the worm is actually mm-hmm. really gorgeous. And then, you know, the fact that it's millions of years old, you know, the, the er- earliest fossil record of it, you know, was, I think four million years, I think is what they said. And yeah, mm-hmm. I think, I think one of the reasons why I enjoy this book so much is similar to the reason why I enjoy like Frankenstein, you know, and like other kind of books that pull on nature a lot because there's this sense of like time outside of human mm-hmm. existence that I find comforting, you know, like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Cause yes, there's a lot of destruction obviously that we're, that's going on, but we are literally a blip and it just, it almost makes me hopeful that like, I don't know that just hopefully this will be done and that we are not doing this as a species anymore anytime soon. I don't know, but I like right. the, but the so sense of time. There's hope in evolution. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the sir like just the sheer will to live and adaptability of species across the globe. Yes. And humans, yes, you I know? like that. And I like I like too um the way that this essay described, you know, the reckoning of sexual assault and like figuring out what happened to you. Like there's a lot of ambiguity with like the Lorena ba- uh, Bobbitt, for example where he was not found guilty of of spousal assault, which if we look at back at that, like now, that's not a thing anymore that that law has changed, luckily. But at the time that it happened, maybe it was more ambiguous to people and they truly like didn't understand or didn't view it as assault. And in a similar way, Sabrina's experience with like alcohol and drugs in her college years and blacking out all the time, um, they didn't, seem to grasp that they'd been sexually assaulted so many times or taken advantage of by people who knew that she was inebriated. Um, And it seems to have taken them a long time to figure out and really figure out the words to describe what happened to them. And I think that ambiguity of like sexual assault not always being, you know, like a stranger pulling you and taking you into the woods, even though that does happen to Sabrina, um, mm-hmm. like, I think that's interesting because a lot of, I don't know, like, I mean, they talk about specifically the Brock Turner case, um, at Stanford and how the media covered that case and how so much of it was about his swim record and the fact that he was this like upstanding citizen and he had such this, this bright future and, um, and she was drunk, so she was asking for it. Or they were both drunk, so he's not responsible for it. And all these like other things that just get played out in the media. And then, you know, the way that not only the victim has to grapple with that, but anybody who's been in that victim's position has to watch their story basically be played out repeatedly. And it, like the questions that it makes them ask themselves about what happened to them, I thought was just 
I mean, yeah, relatable. It, it was a lot, but it was it was great. Yes. I liked this idea that Very. like men can be, um, and obviously not all people who assault people are men, but statistically, it's more likely. Of like this kind of creature that you don't necessarily think is dangerous being like kind of hidden in the depths and like it can be somebody you know and oftentimes it is like majority of the times it's somebody that you know and are close to that assaults you. It's sad. Yeah, it is sad. And and I, what you were talking about, she just it's interesting because she's the scientific writer, right? And so she talks about kind of writing down. Um, this story for the first time and narrating it, you know, with very, like very dryly and with all the details, um, almost wanting to see their experience as if it happened to someone else. And then they, maybe that will help them judge objectively whether it was enough to count as assault and whether it was their fault. Mm -hmm. So like even they said, you know, a decade later trying to figure this out and, just just how long lasting those effects are and and the continuation of these sort of stories and having this happen so much and in so many different ways and then how we take that and put it onto like marine life you right. know the fact that this worm is <laughs> is called a bobbit because of this sexual assault story like almost kind of the ridiculousness of the fact that this is such a thing right well and it's a mockery of it but then it's also like a mockery of the creature, right? So like they talk about mm -hmm. how she, you know, they think that the scientists are, you know, probably pretty glad that this one other science writer asked them to start calling it by the Sandstriker name instead of the Bobbit because yeah. of this story and the fact that so many people then thought that the Sandstriker was like mutilating genitalia on other animals, even though that's not the case at all. Um, yeah. And it's crazy. It's been, like you said, it's been around for 400 million years. Yeah. And, and this is kind of what we, what the attributes we, we give it and kind of how we, um, anthropomorphize isn't the right word for this, but how we take, we talked about this, I think last episode, mm -hmm. how we take, um, behavior of animals and put kind of our own personal feelings on it and attribute like morals, you know, to like, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, how we like to have things like, they talk about it in the essay, but, you know, stealthy crocodile captures unsuspecting prey and like right. unsuspecting lizard, cuttlefish hypnotizes unsuspecting crab. And we're like, it's interesting how we, what attributes we put on the prey and on the predator and mm -hmm. how that really just says more about how we, how we view prey and predator. And it's, really as humans we act like this not necessarily these creatures that is such a good point because they were like, like it's never the she said, they say it's never unsuspecting yeah this assumption that the creatures had no idea but also like the focus on the predator um they talk I, I don't know if it was actually in this essay or if it was one in one of the later ones but they talk about um how in all of the you know science documentaries and um nature documentaries there's you know, they do talk about the the prey, but they always end up mm -hmm. at the predator and it always kind of ends up at the climax or the kill. And yes. um, I thought that was interesting because there's seems to be so much in nature, so much more respect for the predator, you know, and this like mm -hmm. idea that our predator is superior and 
you know, more likely to survive. And to me, that is so similar to the way that people treat victims of like all cases and the way victims view themselves as well. Like victim is such a dirty word. And I've seen that in my own, Mm -hmm. in my work. And it's not actually a dirty word. And I wish that people didn't associate shame with it. But I think what is described in this essay is that, like this people's fear of being prey, being preyed upon, or being caught, or being um, used in some way. Like there's a shame to it. And unfortunately, that actually hinders a lot of people like from healing or moving forward or getting out of bad situations because they refuse to look at themselves that way. But it's not actually a bad thing, you know, to recognize that you need help or that you're in a bad situation and, and, you know, being prey or being a victim is not necessarily a bad, a bad thing. We say that all the time. Don't be a victim, right? Mm -hmm. They're being a victim. Stop playing the victim. It it is. Yeah, it is interesting. And like I said, these essays really make you face some of those dark things in these deep ocean, dark depths Mm -hmm. that aren't even really about the ocean. I mean, this isn't, this wasn't an easy essay to read. It's definitely triggering, especially if you've been through sexual assault. And even if you haven't, it's, it's, it's awful. And, Mm -hmm. um, it's an interesting thing to look at these, these terms that we, that we use and that we put on people. Um, and I, I mean, but it ends, I, I think they ended in a more hopeful way, which like we've been mm-hmm. saying, um, you know, t- talking about like a club that they go to in Bushwick and and how I love hearing about the gatherings that uh, Sabrina talks about, particularly when it comes to like dancing and being with their friends and what that's like. And, you know, going to this one club where it says on the back wall in white paint, if you touch a woman against her will in this establishment, we will literally ruin your life. (laughs) And and just, you know, and, and then they say they met their first girlfriend that night and spent Mm -hmm. hours talking and kind of ending it with like, you know, can I have this, can, can things be good? Can I have sweetness? Can I get past these horrible things? And, and have a clear, sweet, good memory? And the answer is yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is a hard, hard essay. And it's interesting because how we split this book up, like this was kind of a hard one to go back to, yeah. but then it ends in such a nice, hopeful way and, and flows really well into hybrids. The next one, I think. I think so too. I also just want to say before we move into the next one, I like that this scene at the club and specifically the saying that's written on the wall kind of takes back like the idea of female revenge, you know, and like makes it not a joke. Like we will ruin Mm -hmm. your life. We will cut off your penis. We will do like whatever we need to do to take care of each other. And I like the kind of like reclamation of that. And I do think that that like a celebration of that has been happening, you know, like of like, people plotting people more for coming forward or for, or at least like being more understanding about it. Um, so that does make me happy and I, I enjoyed it. Um, hybrids. Yeah, I really liked this essay. It was a bit of a, um, I, I like when, when it's almost like this fourth wall is broken in a way, Mm -hmm. you know, how you talk about with TV shows, um, because Sabrina starts it off talking about writing this essay 
you know, and it says what this essay will and will not include. And in of essence, then including those things and talking about how, you know, the, the, it says, you know, the essay won't include, you know, the scene that I kind of think is corny, even though I am corny, uh, about this acceptance of themselves and their identity specifically being like, uh, you know, her, her biracial identity, Mm -hmm. um, but talks about like, I used to read essays like that and I sought them out and I loved them. I gorged myself on them, but like, that's not the kind of essay that I'm going to write anymore. And then keeps talking about the essay and how they're going to write it. And I love when people talk that way because it's so interesting to get the thought process of it. And Mm -hmm. they're kind of accomplishing all of those goals. Like I'm not writing some cheesy essay, but I'm kind of writing a cheesy essay because I'm telling you what would be in the cheesy essay, but this isn't going to be a cheesy essay. Like, I don't know. I just, it's such a nice conversational way. I think to, to start the subject, which I can imagine is just incredibly difficult to, to talk about the idea of racial identity and dealing with the racism and all of that. Like how, how do you put that in a nice, neat packaged essay? I think that's kind of the point. And I think that it's impossible to do to like to ask somebody to put their entire racial identity and description of it into one thing when Mm -hmm. their approach to it and feelings on it probably change on a day-to-day basis. And I love that, um, on page 149, you know, they talk about how they did write an essay like that and they actually did sell it and they got paid $50 and they realized that they had, um, I had written the essay not just for a white editor, but also for a white audience. Like a dutiful little trash compactor, I had digested my messy heap of an identity into a manageable lesson for people who were not like me. And this like sense of feeling like they needed to have a solution after the problem after stating the problem or the issue that they've experienced, but how like that's impossible to do, you know, like you can't, no one person can find a solution to the conversation around like racial identity. It's not something that's a, the same for anybody and, um, how they feel about it could still change on a day-to-day basis. They talk about how one of the essays that they had written, they had talked about how a question that they're always asked is like, what are you? And like, oh, you know, like the labels always asked about it. And then they kind of end with, it's okay to ask me, you know, just ask instead of just staring or instead of just like trying to guess. And then they immediately regretted it because they, they, they were like, I just invited like all of the public to ask me constantly about my racial identity when maybe I don't want to think about it for 20 minutes in my day, right? Like it's always has to be something that they have to think about. Um, which is something that really only like, I don't know. I've, I just, obviously I'd never have to think about my race on a day-to-day basis because the world is made for people who look like me. Yeah, exactly. And you know, they, they bring up the eugenics movement and this idea of labeling and specifically the term hybrid, you know, that term came into use around 1600 and it was supposed to describe the offspring of plants and animals of different species. Like for instance, you know, a horse and a donkey, you have a mule and they're not then supposed to be able to breed like two mules can't breed. And it's just interesting again, how we were talking about in the last part, how we attribute some of these terms, characteristics, things with animals as we do with people, but the opposite is true as well, right? So people didn't want um, 
those of mixed race to breed. Right. And just and just all this thing about terminology and labeling and how maybe it can work really great in the scientific field, but just how much damage it has done uh, to our humanity as well. Well, I think like this is a good example of the weaponization of science and how it can be weaponized yeah. in so many different ways, whether it's people taking... Darwinism and the theories of evolution and attributing that to eugenics and, you know, Hitler and like they're a reason to breed out certain types of people mm -hmm. in our communities. Um, you know, I mean, and it happens all the time. Like I talk a lot about this sometimes with Brian because he's a physicist and yeah, there are, you know, we just kind of approach the world very differently where I, I, at times while I like, I love scientific progress and I think generally we go in the right direction, it's impossible for me to also like not look past the way that science has been weaponized and destroyed people and livelihoods. And like, I think about weapons all the time and chemical warfare, biological mm -hmm. warfare. Like this is something I, that, that occupies my brain a lot. And, um, and that's something that even like bears heavily on Brian. Like he thinks about, he thinks about the scientists that like worked on that atomic bomb all the time. Sure. You know, and the way that this research was utilized and kind of the funny way to look at it is like Jurassic Park of, you know, just because you, like you never stop to ask whether or not you should, you know, just if you could. Right, right. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. Yes. I totally butchered the quote, but that is always what I think about of like the meme of Jeff Goldblum and his black shirt. It just like looking sexy as hell saying stuff like that. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's also how I feel. And I like the kind of way that this story in this essay attributes similar issues um, in a socio like sociological context. Yeah. No, I agree. Just that. I mean, and that question of, it's a simple one, but the question of like, what are you? Mm -hmm. Like that in and of itself is an act of taxonomy. And so like you're saying the the harm, so that all the good that science can provide and then all the harm it can also provide even just by asking those simple questions. Like right. just asking someone, what are you? You know, and, and being, you know, how many people, what, where are you from? What are you? You know, asking these questions and asking people to identify themselves in a way that is pleasing or satisfying for the person asking, not because it actually has any, any purpose. Well, and I like the way that they talk about it. Like, um, it's kind of a funny, but not funny description of, of, um, how some people pursue it is, um, they talk about it like it's like Asian Russian roulette or something where people will be asked mm -hmm. like what race they are and they'll be like, Oh, I thought you were Korean and like, or I, Oh, I knew you were Chinese. Like I had a right. feeling and it's kind of this weird way of like white people or maybe just non-Asian people in the specific context. Um, like congratulating themselves for being able to like identify an ethnicity. Like it's, very it's a very weird thing but at the same time it's I don't know it's it's very weird it's just weird how much it occupies people's brains but then it's also something that like you can't act like it doesn't exist and you shouldn't act like it doesn't exist 
Yeah. Um, and I, I like the, like we've been talking about this whole time, just uh, the messiness that Sabrina presents in her articles and, you know, it does it in such a way that's not preachy either, you know, so they're touched. So outside of their own experience with this question of racial identity, uh, they're talking about the hybrid butterfly fish mm-hmm. and it's from the swims in the waters off lizard Island near Australia, but doesn't want to, really call it Lizard Island anymore because that name was given to it by Captain James Cook, who visited once, saw all these lizards, named it Lizard Island. But that's not what the name was. I think it's Jijiru by the Aboriginal people who lived on the island for tens of thousands of years before Mm. Cook ever even visited it. Um, And then how one of the people who described the hybrid butterfly fish was John Randall, who was a white scientist who spent a lot of his time in Hawaii and other islands. And uh, Sabrina kind of finds a picture of him after he died in his, his obituary in 2020. Mm-hmm. And it mentioned his wife and uh, collaborator, Helen Au. Um, and, you know, Sabrina says, I saw a black and white picture of Randall and I'm seeing Au and he's a tall white man in a Hawaiian shirt. And then there's a shorter ethnically Chinese woman and seeing her, her seeing her parents in that picture, not because they necessarily totally physically resembled um, Randall and and his wife Ao, but that they fit kind of this same mold. And then what what came out of that mold? Kind of this creation of two different people: this white man and a younger Asian person, uh, Asian woman, and what that was like. And I've I think their exploration of what it means to be this mixed race and growing up that way and having to categorize themselves and still always having to categorize themselves and how it's not something that really is labeled. Just like the name of the island isn't necessarily Mm. the same across the board or what we think about the butterfly fish isn't always the same across the board. And I think they do a great job of pointing out the mutability of science and how even though we want to label all these things, they kind of, they exist outside of a label, right? And that's so hard for us to process. Like we want to be able to nail down what things are, what are they called, where do they come from, what happens and have all these answers. And they, you really can't do that. You know, like they end the essay with, we're still dissecting ourselves, mm-hmm. but that has to be us asking the questions about what are we and who do we come from? Not necessarily having other people give those labels and ask us like that. Those things all got to have to come internally, but we spend so much time wanting to quantify and label other. Well, and then you, like I think something that they explore in this is the assumptions people make about their own family dynamic just by looking at them and like the assumption that maybe the dad has an Asian fetish. And that's why they exist, you know, and like the way that Mm -hmm. white men with Asian wives are treated versus maybe if it was a white woman and an Asian man. And um, the fact that when, you know, they talk about going out with their dad and people will assume that they are his girl, like his girlfriend or his wife, even though it's his daughter, you know, and like this weird, they, they don't really like reveal how, and they specifically purposely say they will not reveal how their parents met and how they fell in love and got together. But I think it's definitely something that they're exploring and something that they 
identify as something that they had to work through and questioned as they grew up and as an adult had to like have a conversation at some point with their parents about it because Mm -hmm. of the onslaught of feelings that other people have about those relationships kind of embedding itself into how like they view their own families um, and questioning their family and to a certain degree and it's like clearly they worked through it and they're fine but like Though just the way that the public's perceptions on any kind of relationship and any kind of family can impact how they feel about each other. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I thought this was great. And I like how they ended the essay. Like, I really enjoyed how they wrote this essay in particular and how it was structured. And, you know, they ended as well with talking about, you know, maybe complaining to someone who gets it is one of the purest comforts on earth. And True, like so well said. And just how that idea of feeling other and feeling alone and feeling not understood, not heard can just be so depressing and isolating and awful. And in writing these essays, both about things that are unknown to us, like I didn't know anything about the damn like butterfly fish outside of kind of what they looked like or the cuttlefish or any of those things learning something new while also having someone reinforce things that are familiar to you, such as sexual assault or, you know, racism or any of the struggles that you've also experienced is such a comforting thing. Yeah. And it's so nice to know that it's nice to have someone tell you, this is what I was trying to get out of. I mean, that's obviously one of the intentions of these essays is Mm -hmm. a way to, to communicate with others, right? Like that's what art is, is communicating with others and having them understand and and you understand them better. And I just, it was really nice to have this essay, just like I said, break that fourth wall and really get a glimpse into Sabrina and why they wrote this and kind of what they're getting out of it as well. It really, I feel like made me connect with them much more as a writer as well. I agree. All right, should we talk about We Swarm? Yes, this one, I really, I really, really liked this essay. I liked both the parts about the whales, even though so sad, just the, I don't know, there's something so just viscerally haunting when you see like a whale stranded on a beach or you hear of a whale death because they're just such, I mean, all of these creatures that Sabrina writes about are amazing and fascinating and majestic, but Particularly, I feel like whales are just truly like these these giant magical creatures. And it's so sad, like how how much we cause their death. I know it's thinking about all of the time and like millennia that it took for that creature to exist and to be what it is and be as big as it is and intelligent as they are um, and have like the communities that they have and. The, their ability to communicate and to like travel with each other. They're truly, truly intelligent beings. Um, I agree. I thought that this image of the, of the beach dwell was really sad, but I also thought it was interesting too, of like the way that um, they were talking about the same beach and they came across um, these, you know, gelatinous blobs basically all on the beach and in the water. Um, they were swimming with them and, you know, they don't have actually any proof of that they were what they were because they didn't have their phone. They weren't able to take pictures and nobody identified them. But they believe, based on their research, that they were selps, um, which, like, a selp is basically a gelatinous blob 
Um, but it is a, a creature, a living creature that clones itself and exists in these kind of chains of um, clones and they are able to move around and exist and live together and that's how they kind of get places. Um, but I thought it was interesting the way that, you know, like the whale got all this attention, but maybe the same thing happened to this other kind of creature and how that creature didn't get any media attention or nobody seemed to notice or care about it too. Right. And, and like, I like that the fact that they paid attention to it and like they are giving this creature that kind of moment, but yeah, like the way that, you know, they talk about how every beached whale gets an article, but like none of the smaller creatures that we think of as insignificant get any attention and like what we attribute it to what makes an animal or a creature significant to us is interesting. Yes. That said, I will say like, I love whales. And so it was extra hard for me to think about like a poor whale, like, because they're just, they they feel more sentient. Like, I think that's maybe what it is, is that they're so large, they're so big that they're like, you can't not see them. But there's also the sense that like, when you look at a whale's eye, that it sees you too. Do you know what I mean? Like there's this, I don't know, this feeling that they like also acknowledge their existence that makes it so sad. Ever, I well, okay, have you ever seen Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home? Oh, I have. It's my favorite Star Trek movie. Often known, it's one of my favorites too. Often known as like the whale movie because in it, they have to travel back in time uh, to, because we have killed out, the killed off the whales and this alien species has noticed that they are not hearing the signal from the whales anymore mm-hmm. and they are traveling to Earth to see what's going on and they're going to destroy earth not intentionally but because won't get into it and so <laughs> like they, <laughs> the enterprise grows to travel back in time to get these whales and bring them to present day when star trek is mm-hmm. and to repo- and like but it's just so great and you know spock communes with the whales and mm-hmm. like it's like see they are crucial to our existence is kind of the point not just them but you know environmentally we need to take care of our environment is like the point. Right. But it, they are, they're magical creatures. But I think like you were talking about how they're maybe given more attention than say these smaller, uh, what's the word? Like you can like see through these things, the, the, the cells like translucent. Yeah. Yeah. These, yeah. And these kind of translucent blobs basically. And then I think, you know, they, they Sabrina brings up, they read this whale's obituary on Reese Beach. And Reese Beach is this place that they went a lot. And it was kind of this haven uh, for mm-hmm. the gay community and kind of the same idea of what deaths are viewed as important versus what's not. And I think you can really get it's it's a the thing with the the blobs is a metaphor for what's going on with the people who are dying, who are, you know, gay, lesbian, bi, transgender in particular, right. and what's what deaths are seen as important, what deaths aren't, um, you know, and and I think that they they really hammer that point home, um, and and how they've kind of had to form their own community, what that community looked like, how what a safe haven it was for Sabrina and the other people that that they were involved with and how long it's been around and the evolution of it and the continuing to survive despite 
all the things that they're up against. And I thought it was just such a nice essay of survival. Well, um, and community and like the strength in community yeah. and the strength of representation too, like of seeing people who look like you, who think like you, that feel like you and the yeah. way, the strength in numbers that that brings. And mm-hmm. like, this is why pride's important, you know, like, like a lot of the people, homophobic people who look at events like pride, you know, and are like, well, like we don't have straight day. Like, what are you talking about? Like, why do they get a day? Why do they get a month or whatever? Which is so stupid because literally our entire society is based on straight heterosexual love, you know, and companionship. So it's ridiculous, but like the, the, that's why it's so important to have spaces and days where you can be loud and you can feel like you're not afraid to be who you are and that you're not going to get harmed because you're surrounded by people who will protect and care about you and who want you to be exactly who you are. And the way that no matter like the strength and endurance of the queer community is illustrated so perfectly here where like, yeah, they're just not afraid to be invisible anymore. They will be loud. They will make themselves safe and they will find spaces wherever they are to be who they are. And yeah. like, yeah. regardless of how many people want to see them dead or to see them stop or change themselves, you know, like it's just not happening anymore. And I like this like the sense of community and then what it meant specifically to Sabrina um, as they kind of work through their identity and the way that in a lot of ways it like totally saves, saved their lives, you know, and so many other yeah. people's lives is just pretty remarkable really when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Very touching, very empowering, very like admirable. Yeah. It was a really, the the strength represented in both sets of communities and mm-hmm. as creatures was it was definitely I think it was one of the more inspiring essays of the of the collection. I agree. All right, more thing um, like a cuttlefish. Yeah. I love the cuttlefish. I one. love the cuttlefish. Just period. Like I love the cuttlefish. I was so fascinated yeah. by the story. Like I knew about cuttlefish, but I didn't like know about cuttlefish. Oh, I went down a deep dive after reading this <laughs> right. and like watched so many videos and looked at so many pictures and read all sorts of blurbs about it. Um, yeah. So basically the male and female common cuttlefish can both change their appearance at will to, to look like anything they want. And Uh, According to scientists, the only way to sex a living cuttlefish is to place the creatures in front of a mirror and see which flare up in harsh black and white stripes. Um, And male cuttlefish have these stripes when they see another male. Um, But then even then they said that's no sure thing because cuttlefish can sometimes make mistakes too. And so like (laughs) you don't even really know. And I thought it was an interesting way to point out the whole like, because, you know, we love to gender things, right? Is it a man, is it a boy or a girl? Like, Mm -hmm. it's like always a question for any creature or any person. And, you know, how much uh, they bring up, of course, also how much um, science focus their research on male cuttlefish, which is usually what happens. They, scientists put most of their attention on the male of the species 
go figure. Which to me is um, like so ironic. I like it is. It doesn't make any yeah. sense. Like you would think that the you know attention would be put on the specific sex that can I don't know reproduce. Like it just seems mm-hmm. like that would be more important from a scientific perspective. But I guess not. I guess not. Let's not. Yeah, we can't impose logic <laughs> into this, Sadie. Um, but yeah, I liked. I really liked this concept of the the changing like. Mm-hmm excuse me, like what Sabrina goes through, like even just talking about how when they moved to Seattle, well, they moved to Seattle because their ex loves Seattle and they're still in love with their ex. And then, you know, they decided to dress this way or not dress this way and kind of their interest in tattoos as well. Like, I I think just this idea of what we look like and the changing of that and the being able to morph and what that actually represents. And it's not just, um, you know, I think the cuttlefish was a good example for that. There's other creatures that you could talk about. Um, but I mean, like octopus mm-hmm. can, I know, change the way they look too. But I thought the cuttlefish part was was a, a good, a good uh, creature to compare it with because there's really so much that they can change about themselves. And it's not even necessarily be in ways that we even understand why. It's like, does it need to have an answer? Like... Right. They can have this camouflage and we don't necessarily have to know, have to be able to explain it. Does that make sense? Like, right. Just like we, we want to have these answers for everything. And it's like the fact that you can change and can morph and can be fluid in that way is in of itself. uh, That's enough of an identity. Does that make sense? Yeah. I like kind of the idea of them being flamboyant in a way too, of like being really colorful Mm -hmm. and, and of, um, having like communicating with each other in ways that we can't understand and that we think are kind of like maybe even silly or something. Like they talk about the specific color or shape that they will do but they do it in almost every single scenario. So it's impossible for us as humans to figure out what it means. Like we can't categorize it as like danger or love or mating or anything. Like we have no idea what it means. They know what it means, but I like, like maybe it's just for fun. Maybe they just like it. Like, you yeah. know, like we have no yeah. idea and the, like we can't just assign, you know, an understanding or I guess to everything that they do. Um, but I also like that, um, Like, like you said, like we don't have to get it and we don't have to understand. And a lot of what Sabrina describes about her, like their own gender journey, I guess, you know, is really complicated. And it's something that I've never experienced and will probably never fully 100% grasp because it's something I've never been through, but it's still okay and it's still valid And I like this because I think a lot of people, when they specifically look at, like, people who don't understand or don't know anybody who's trans, maybe, can look at that experience and be nervous that, A, like, what if you change your mind? Or, like, is what you're feeling really real? Or, you know, people who detransition and, like, the the kind of criticism that they'll receive or, like, nervousness to Mm -hmm. detransition after making that decision. I liked that this story kind of embraced that fluidity and how it can change day to day and how it's okay to change day to day. And it's like, why would you expect somebody to necessarily identify with the same thing 
for their entire lives. Like it's okay for it to change. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was such a well, well reasoned, like not even argument, but just answer to maybe that question. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was very, I thought it was, um, a really straightforward essay. Mm -hmm. It gave really good information and was just very like this one seemed almost, they seemed the most comfortable in as far as talking about the personal aspect of it, if that makes sense. Like, right. Like this, like the actual, you you mean what I'm saying? Like, like, like they got really specific, like with the actual feeling as someone who is maybe like, like, genetically female I wouldn't even say that though like I I guess I I don't know the proper terms but like biologically female quest like quotes because we all know that like we're not actually just x xx or xy but like right the feeling of like wanting a penis or something but not identifying as Mm -hmm. like he you know or like yeah just the and then, like, the way and, like, the options of, like, how to kind of address that both personally and, like, in their relationship. And I thought that was very candid and refreshing yeah. because it's something I think a I lot of people too. are really afraid to talk about. And also, in a lot of ways, like, it's not anybody's business, but it's refreshing that they felt okay to talk about it. And, and it's not that complicated. Right. Like, you know what I mean? It's a very simple, straightforward. They talk about it very, it's very conversational because the subject matter itself is not that complicated. We overcomplicate so much ridiculous shit because it just makes us uncomfortable or Mm -hmm. we don't understand it or don't have a point of reference. And so I, I thought it was just a really well-written, clear, straightforward essay while also being like super informative. Agreed. Alrighty. The last story is Us Everlasting with contributors. Um, There are several contributors, so I'm not going to list everybody's name because that would take another five minutes in this episode. Um, But this (laughs) one is really interesting. Um, This one is about the immortal jellyfish. Yeah. So I love jellyfish. I do too. So this one's really cool. I really, I think this is actually one of my favorite, um, like, science analogies that they are making um about like queer people just being able to survive and like have different kind of lives um but this immortal jellyfish mortal in quotations is a jellyfish um it's very small but many jellyfish they found can actually do this uh to a certain degree where they're basically able to like reverse aging and that in that way they can live forever. So anytime they get damaged um, to the point that they would normally die, they basically just sink to the bottom of the ocean floor or to the bottom of the tank, wherever they're located. And then they become like this pod um, of protein and they're able to basically create clones of themselves. And in that way, those identical clones Um, start as babies again and then they all can continue to do this as many times as they possibly can so there's nobody actually knows how many times they can do this um yeah but in perpetuity is under is our understanding of how they're able to do this best way to describe it yes um and I loved this I love this like idea of like regeneration and rebirth and starting over um in kind of like a violent like a 
not violent, but like maybe something negative that seems negative on the outset actually mm-hmm. ends up strengthening the unit, right? Like this one thing yeah. happening to this one thing turns into 10 or 15 of the same thing. And they're, the way that they're able to kind of progenate in that way um, was interesting. And like, I, I just liked this idea, you know, that like, try as we might as human beings to stifle communities or to try to get rid of them. Like, we're not going to be successful. It's just not going to happen. So we should just give up now and just let people be who they want to be. Right? Like, that's kind of my sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. They end it with all of us moving towards life, all of us refusing to die, Mm -hmm. you know, and just this, this inevitability of that. And it's like, why this desire to eradicate basically when it, it's it's not going to happen and you know and I love how they included all of these different voices in the essay I thought that was such a great way mm-hmm. as like the final essay of the collection to have these kind of I mean they're they're kind of these little sections called life number you know one two three all the way up and right. and these different voices and the and that kind of growingness of it's not just Sabrina's voice anymore it's more than one voice, it reinforces that idea of strength, strength in community, strength in numbers, but not even just in numbers, just like the strength in them as individuals and their everlastingness. And, you know, I think the, the essay is a, is a testament to that. Um, the fact that this was published is a testament to that and mm-hmm. kind of the, the continuation of growth and regrowing, you know, they bring up that these jellyfish aren't the only creatures that we know can grow back parts or continue to, to thrive despite having, you know, a tail cut off or things like that. But I think it really brought it home in a way of there's many, we're all here. We're all part of the same humanity. We're all inexplicably linked and like, we're going to continue to, to thrive. I know. I loved it. And I, I think, like you said, there's so many stories in this um, book that are dealing with difficult subjects that are hard to digest. And every, every story works individually. Like I think that I could pick it up in a magazine or something and every story still works as an individual piece. But then this final story of saying like all of this stuff, all of this junk that you just, you know, had to sift through and like deal with of all these problems in the world, like we as people are just as adaptable and just as likely to survive as any of the creatures that we talked about. Like we are just, we've been through this life too and we've survived a long time and we didn't just appear out of nowhere and like we'll continue to be here and specifically, you know, I think they're addressing the queer community in the way that um, no matter what unfortunate, like, acts of violence happen, they won't yeah. stop having pride events and they won't stop being who they are. And they've always been here. Yeah. And I, I really thought it was such a great way to end and wrap up the whole collection. Yeah, 
I agree. It was great. I, this was such a great pick. It was such a nice little change of pace for us in mm-hmm. such a great way. Like love this. I've been recommending it all over the place. So if you guys have not read it, hopefully these episodes inspired you too. It's mm-hmm. really great. Super informative, super personable, really moving, really a great, a great collection. So I hope to, I hope to see more from Sabrina Imbler and I will definitely be reading it. So I hope, I hope you guys go pick up your copy. Me too. It sounds like this was like a pretty big break for them too. Like in the after word, you know, the author's note, they talk about how they had written this book while they were working like a full-time job and like finishing school or something like they were clearly very busy and they, you know, they say, I don't recommend necessarily doing this as I did, but I, we do get like peeks right. into their writing process and the way that they, you know, discussed their essays with their friends and everything like that. But I just think, I hope that this is like the big break that Sabrina and Blur needed. And I really like am interested to see what they do going forward. Yeah, same. Um, and then, uh, again, our next book is uh, Fledgling by Octavia Butler. So go pick up your copy from your local bookstore or from bookshop.org um, and get reading on that because uh, that should be a fun discussion as well. So we will talk to you guys next time. Bye.